So Money episode 1187, John Berger, author of Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. If you put the excessive prioritization on marrying a guy who went to an Ivy League school and who works for Goldman Sachs, you could be waiting forever. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Chirabi. Hope you had a great weekend. It is Monday, April 19th. And the topic today is love, love and money. Whether you're married, single, dating, not interested, I think you'll find this conversation with our guest, John Berger, very exciting, very interesting. You may think dating is not really a money topic, but it kind of is. Who we choose to partner up with has financial implications. John Berger is the author of Make Your Move, which is the sequel to his original book on dating called Dateonomics. In this book, he talks about the new science of dating and why women are in charge. So if you haven't noticed, society is changing, which means it is time for dating to evolve. Millennial and Gen Z women are more than capable of seeking out what and who they want, says John Berger. But there is an economic situation at play. There are more young, single, college-educated women out there and a shrinking supply of men whom they feel are their quote-unquote equals. So we do talk talk about the definition of equal, how that should or may already be evolving. Who not to date? (laughs) And are all these dating apps worth our time? Here's John Berger. John Berger, welcome back to So Money. Still talking about dating. You're, You're liking this topic a lot. Well, I, I guess so. You know, I had to do something different. I can't write about five stocks to buy now forever, right? No, I think there is a shelf life <laughs> to that. Um, last we, and by the way, I don't know for listeners who didn't catch you on so many the first time, who don't know our backstory. You and I worked together all those years ago doing those mutual fund stories and stock picking stories at Money Magazine in the early two thousands. And so I, it's really nice. I, to I, I, I think you were essentially across the cubicle from me, right? Yes. Is that, yes. 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 Um, and what a place to work. I have, I always say it was, it was, I got a chance to really rub shoulders with some of the best in class and learned so much from you and uh, all the uh, senior writers at Money who are now doing even more amazing things. Your last book, you were on here talking about date anomics, how dating became a lopsided numbers game. Your follow up to that is a book called Make Your Move. This is, what uh, Publishers Weekly describes as an honest solution-based guide to finding love that lasts. If you're tired of playing by old rules, look no further, make your move and win. So what are the new rules, John? And I, I have a feeling that women are are making a lot of the, the, the rules. Yeah. I, I mean, I can I just back up a little bit and just tell you how, like a little bit of the origin story of the new book? Is that Okay. Yes, please. Yeah. So, um, as you as you may recall, with datanomics, um, that book was like more pop science than an advice book. Um, you know, I was trying to explain why dating had become so hard for college educated women, and you know the the simple 
version or the, the boiled down version is that for the past 20, 30 years, we've had four women graduate from college for every three men. So we now have this very lopsided dating pool in which because men are scarce, so to speak, that men seem to have the upper hand. But I, with the first book, I was, I, I was just interested in exploring the origins of this curiosity, why it is that women seem to have a harder time with dating. But when I got out on book tour, and I'm sure this will be no surprise to you, the knowledge is power thing really wasn't enough. Like what women would say, okay, I get it. I feel better that it's not all in my head, that it is really hard out there. But they still kind of wanted me to offer them advice on how to fix their love lives. And you know me from way back when I I, I never like thought of myself as the love doctor. So I I didn't, (laughs) I didn't, um, this wasn't like part of the way I conceptualized the first book, but perhaps I should have. And I kind of have some regrets for not, you know, kind of trying to solve the dating problem as, as, as opposed to just explaining it. So that, that's kind of. But it does merit its own book. Would you not, would you agree? It's not like you can't squeeze that in. You got to really dedicate. I I, I, I guess, but you know, they, I kind of had this, realization when I was on book tour with Datanomics that um, everybody who came to my book event still wanted me to tell them what to do now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I kind of like, I I didn't have any skin in the game because I'm like, I got married in my mid twenties. I'm a guy. I, I didn't realize, I, I treated this as a topic that was kind of impersonal to me. And obviously a woman who intended on getting married and starting a family and is struggling with dating. This is not an impersonal subject. It's very Mm -hmm. personal. And for me to write a book that doesn't really offer strategies and solutions, which datanomics did not, I, I, in hindsight, I realized that was Mm -hmm. in some ways unfair. Well, you're right. It is a very subjective area of advice, uh, but you do have some really great in the new book, I do. Yes, you do. You do. You have a lot. You and I. I really appreciate, in in some ways, you know, the way that you encourage readers to rethink some of the perhaps, you know, the traditional things that they thought they assumed about marriage. One being, for example, if you're a woman who is uh, determined to be career driven and be financially independent, like your 20s should really be dedicated to achieving that and pursuing that. I was given that advice from my immigrant parents who I wasn't even allowed to tell them if I had a boyfriend in (laughs) high school. And then, you know, suddenly I turned 30. My mother was like, are you going to get married? And I was like, whoa, 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 you told me never to date. I don't understand what you want me to do. So I feel like my story is not singular in that way. We got a lot of that advice, I think, in my generation. And you're telling us now that we shouldn't be so black or white about it. It shouldn't be about like reaching 30 and then suddenly focusing on marriage. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the advice you got is is what I hear all the time from single women, this notion that career and grad school or education has to come first. And then if you wait until you're 30 to get serious about dating, you'll be kind of more emotionally prepared, financially prepared for marriage and parenthood, and maybe your guys will be more prepared for that too. And I kind of understand the the logic, but the, the problem is, particularly if you want to marry a college-educated guy, the, the, the dating pool starts out as four women for every three men. 
it, it actually, yeah, we don't have to go through all the math if you don't want to, but it actually becomes tougher for women over time. Mm-hmm. So my message and make your move is, look, I, I'm not telling everybody you have to get married. You know, if you put zero priority on marriage and kids and your highest priority on on launching your startup or teaching the next generation of chalice or something like that i mean i, I mean live your life i mean do do what's going to make you happy mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not like telling people what they should or should not prioritize but my point well, it's just the last thing my, my point is if, yeah. if you do prioritize marriage and family live your life that way mm-hmm. yeah without any shame or regret why Is it that we are so, as women, overwhelmed by the process? Do you think that the dating apps are just creating more of this analysis paralysis, this paradox of choice, which we've discovered is like having too many choices is not a good thing, whether you're trying to decide on an ice cream flavor or who to date on Saturday night. So in what ways have apps facilitated the dating process and finding your match? And how is it a hindrance? So I, I'm leaning towards the latter, that it's a hindrance. Uh, but I will say, I didn't set out to write a book that was going to slam the online dating industry. Although I guess if you read the book, that's largely what I do. Although although I, I, I will say that there are some niche dating apps that I like a lot and I, and I talk about them in the book. But... Um, but in terms of generally why I'm down on online dating, I mean, the, there was a survey that came out last year that Pew Research did, and they found that 53% of women consider online dating to be unsafe, and 20% of women say they've been threatened with physical violence on dating apps. Um, it, it, so, like, you know, if there was a... A singles bar where one fifth of the women uh, were threatened with violence, I don't think a whole lot of people would be going back there. So first off, you have to ask, okay, if there is this this safety concern related to online dating, particularly for women, I mean, that alone is an enormous red flag. On top of that, the relationships don't work out as well. I mean, the, there's a professor at Pace University, Aditi Paul, who looked at this, and then one part of her study, she found that um, that the breakup rates for online couples were, I think, four times higher than for people who met in the real world, and the marriage rates uh, were basically half that of people who met in the real world. And you know, and I don't think it like you don't need a degree in relationship science to understand why it is that that these online relationships fail at a higher rate. I mean, the, I mean, the problem is every online first date is a blind date with a complete stranger. I mean, you don't know the person. So, whereas a first date with somebody you met in church or um, at work or at the dog park or as a neighbor or somebody who you it was a setup through friends or family, there's already kind of a, a level of knowledge and comfort with that connection that makes it easier for people to, to bond you know, during a first date. Oh, you don't know how good I can Google people, though, John. I mean, I'm pretty good. But it's, at- it's, it's, it's not, but you know what? No, Furnish, I'm going to talk about that. So for, for a woman, particularly, um, every first date on a dating app begins with the Googling, right? Like, like, a, like a couple hours of Googling the guy, right? 
Yeah. Facebooking, Google. I mean, I don't know because I haven't done it, but I assume that's what it oh, Okay. All right. So, so, so the, the, yeah. Very no, no the, I mean, the, that's how it begins. It begins with the Googling and the fact checking just to make sure that, you know, Robert the handsome surgeon isn't actually Billy Bob the ex-con or something like that. And then on the day of the date, there's the escape plan. The, you know, the you tell your roommate or your mom or your best friend, look, I'm going to be at this sushi bar uh, at this particular hour. Call me or I, if you don't hear from me, <laughs> you call the police or something. I, I shouldn't be joking, but but, you know, this is this is how how the best rom-coms start. OK, but but but, but, but it, there's a like we joke about it, but the, the fact that you need these kinds of this level of fact checking and escape plans just to do a first date to me as an older person is inherently troubling. But yeah, but you know what? The world is a scary place when you're a woman, and I think that these tactics are not just things that were brought upon us by dating apps. I remember ever since I was a little girl, I was told you know to be not trusting of particularly men, and in that any scenario. So I don't think the dating apps have created this fear or these protocols. It's just that's how unfortunately women have to live their lives. I, I'm, so let me tell you a story from the from the book. So there's a woman, Mia, who I interviewed, and she had this really clever turn of phrase. She she described um, online dating to me as a doubter's game. And the reason she said this is that she had had so many experiences of men lying to her on dating apps, um, you know, lying about their whether they're married or not, uh, whether mm-hmm. they whether their jobs were what they said they were, whether they were actually looking for a relationship or just a hookup. She had had so many experiences like this that she felt she had to protect herself, both in terms of like emotionally and physically. So she started spending her first dates with these online people she met online, basically trying to poke holes in, in these guys' stories, you know, trying to figure out where they were lying. And, you know, as you can imagine, that kind of approach to a, a first date doesn't really lead lead itself to a lot of second dates. So oh, hold on. So she's now engaged to a woman she met through a mutual friend. And she told me that, that with her first date with the fiance, she didn't even bother Googling the guy because she knew for certainty that her good friend would never, ever, ever set her up with a man who was unkind or untrustworthy. And even if she didn't know that there would be chemistry, her whole kind of attitude going into the first date was radically different. And she said that because she was more relaxed and because she was more trusting of the situation, it turned out to be the closest thing to love at first sight she'd ever experienced. Hmm. I agree with you. You know, I think we're, I'm just trying to uh, uh, editorialize it a little bit, my own experiences. And, but I think even when I was blind dated in my twenties, I did go to Google before the date. I did have a backup plan before the date, you know, just because that's the way that I yeah, just. No, no I, I, I don't. Yeah, no, I, yeah. that makes perfect sense to me, but I, I want you to like, think back to your twenties and think about how rare um, a blind date with a complete stranger was back then. Yeah, a, a blind date with a con- complete stranger is every first date for dating app people, right? Mm. So, we, I mean, we, we've gone from something being unusual to something being commonplace. And and I and I guess I mean I would never diminish the safety concerns, but I, but I, I guess if you're smart about it, the way it sounds like you were and and other women certainly are, I, I, I guess it could be manageable. 
But the problem is that the breakup rates for couples who meet online are so much higher. I mean, there's a professor at Stanford University, Michael Rosenfeld, who is like, he's often quoted as being really high and really positive on online dating. But if you kind of look at the appendix of his study, um, he has this table uh, called breakup rates are not much influenced by how couples meet. But this really depends on how you define not much, because he, in his study, he found that the one-year breakup rate for couples who meet online is 16%. For couples who meet through friends and family, it's 9%. Uh, meet as neighbors, it's 8%. Meet as coworkers, it's 6%. And coworkers is my favorite. And then, and then if you meet in, in a house of worship, it's 1%. So... It's not just the safety concerns. The relationships don't work out as well because you don't actually know each other. I do think that it helps to have common ground in something, to have a bond, a shared experience in something, even if you didn't experience it together at the same time. But my husband and I, for example, went to Penn State, not at the same time, but we had a couple classes together, but we were in different friend groups. But I think having that shared experience really anchors us. You talked about workplace dating. That's another potentially high risk place to find love, yep. but 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 you find this is really uh, can be successful for couples. How do you do that right now? So just as context, the reason I'm so high on, on, on workplace dating is that there have been multiple studies done on this. And the marriage rate for couples who meet at work is between 25 and 30 percent, which is incredibly high. And, and, I, and I don't think you need to be a genius to figure out why couples who meet at work marry at a high rate. And the, and the reality is that by the time you get to the first date, you already know each other. I mean, you already know each other's senses of humor. You know whether the other person is, is a good person or not. I mean, if, I mean, as any guy who is deceitful or untrustworthy at work is going to be deceitful and untrustworthy in a relationship. I mean, that, I mean that's obvious. So you've already kind of seen the guy or, or the woman in, in action. And by the time you get to the first date, you're almost already halfway there. But to your point, the percentage of couples who met at work has basically like been cut in half over the past 20 plus years. And I think part of it is the rise of online dating, but part of it is what you're kind of hinting at, that, that the um, politics, so to speak, of workplace dating have changed a lot. And it's changed a lot, particularly in the post Me Too era, although I would probably argue that it was trending, it was becoming more difficult even, even before that. Uh, would you agree? I mean, that yeah, I mean, I, I, it's been a while. So honestly, I've, since I've worked in a company nine to five, so I, I okay. can't really speak to that. So, so I love workplace dating because, again, you know, I'm all in favor of dating people you know. And this is like the, the, my whole date who you know line is a line I kind of stole from Peter Lynch with his whole like buy what you know when it comes to to investing. Um, but I really feel like dating people who you actually know is more likely to lead to a deep connection than somebody who you just a stranger. And there's nobody there are very few people we know better than our coworkers. But. The question is, how do we manage this? And, you know, I, and how, particularly in today's environment in which 
employees and, and employers are really conscious of sexual harassment and and wanting to create a, a workplace where everybody feels safe and comfortable. Like, how do you balance workplace dating with this concern that particularly women feel safe and comfortable at work? And there are two companies that I think have actually hit upon a really good solution to this. And and those two companies are Facebook and Google. And they have a workplace dating rule that basically says that you can ask anybody, anybody out on a date once, but only once. And any answer that isn't an explicit yes counts as a no. So if you ask somebody out on a date and they say, yeah, I'm busy that day or maybe some other time or some some kind of an ambiguous answer like that, that counts as a no. And, And to me, this is a really smart solution. It kind of it prevents this like pestering of particularly women in the workplace, but it also kind of allows relationships to flourish. And, you know, I, I always like to point out like, like a lot of our, you know, our favorite couples like Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, you know, they met at work and she was his supervisor. Um, Tina Brown and, and Harold Evans and Harold Evans just passed away. But the, I mean, that, that was a great love story. And he was, he was her editor. So I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm protective of workplace relationships because I think, you know, there are just so many good ones out there. But I I acknowledge that we need to we need to come up with ways to make it better and safer, particularly for women. I mean, we're spending already so many hours at work there. It really doesn't leave you much with much much time to dedicate to dating and meeting new people makes a lot of sense. Like one-stop shop. Um, (laughs) I I like it. I I should use that line. (laughs) One-stop shopping. Get a get a career. Get a get a mate. One question that I often come across, given that I write for and about female breadwinners, is uh, you know especially for a lot of the young professional women who are climbing up in their careers. To your point perhaps more educated than their male counterparts. We know that millennial women in many metropolitan parts of the country are out earning their male peers. It reverses as they get older, but at least like in their late 20s, the women are exceeding men sometimes in salary. They want to find their match. This is this is the this is the vocabulary women come to me with. I want to find my equal. Yeah. Equal. And they'll say and and what equal means is equal in education, equal in professional rank. And I find that that is a very hard and limiting list of criteria and like it only like leads to disappointment and especially if you're trying to settle down in your late 20s. And so what do you say to people who want to find their equal? How do we how should we think about finding an, a partner that meets our equal criteria? What's I don't know if this has been your experience, Farnoosh, but a lot of the, the women who I've interviewed who tell me stories like what you just said, they've had actually all sorts of negative experiences with men whom they consider their equal. Is that is that fair? Yes. Or they say like, I don't want to date down, which is so Wait, awful. But you know, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I, I, I resist any kind of language like that: dating down, settling, yes. compromising, because it's incredibly pejorative. But 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 I actually, th- what the irony is that that the women who tell me this, and, and I, I'm not blaming them because I think this is part of the way our culture has socialized, but. The irony is that so many of, the, of them have had horrendously awful experiences with men who are their equal. 
you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. bankers and lawyers and doctors who completely mistreat them, that I'm, I'm like always baffled, okay, you know, that Wall Street guy you dated cheated on you constantly and then ghosted you out of nowhere, yet... Yeah, God forbid you date an electrician. <laughs> like I'm, I'm right, uh, who treats you like a queen. Yes. I, I think that yeah, I think that there is an, a misunderstanding about what equal should be. And uh, you know, I think what I always like to remind women and men is that when you're looking for your equal, that's fair, but maybe we should look at the other equal parts, like equal in my values, equal in, you know, maybe my religion, even because sometimes that is really important to couples. It's not about like where you went to college or do you have an MBA or are you making as much as I am? I think that is a very superficial way to look at this equal lens. I think you got to look at some of the more important things like, do we see eye to eye when it comes to things like family and what are our goals and ambitions in life? And, And that I think is what ultimately drives longevity in a relationship. And yeah, you can both be lawyers and doctors. It doesn't mean it's going to be a great harmonious marriage. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of what I call mixed collar marriage, which is basically, you know, white collar women marrying blue collar guys. Uh, uh, And I, you know, and and I'm, so I, I coach little league baseball and because of I mean, even though I live in a pretty white bread suburban community, a, a disproportionate number of the like the, the little, little league coaches and the travel coaches that, you know, they're, they tend to be more blue collar. They own like landscaping companies or they're cops or they're firemen, things like that. I mean, not all of them, but I, I've just gotten I've either coached with or coached against a lot of these guys. And they're now my friends. And, and I'll tell you, like, they're great guys and they have more time for their kids because they have more regular hours than your typical lawyer or stockbroker or investment banker or things like that. And the other thing I'd point out, and I know that you know this as well as anybody, a guy who's an electrician or a cop, he's not bringing $80,000 in student loan debt to the relationship, right? Right. And as you, you know, th- again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but there are a few things that can like doom a young marriage more than one, one member of the relationship's excessive debt. Um, right. So I, I, I think th- this needs to be part of the equation as well. And like, remind us why it's important to get married. (laughs) (laughs) Can you do that? Oh, yeah. Thank you for prompting me on that. Like, I I always like to put out, like, I'm not, um, I'm not telling people they have to get married and have kids. I'm not telling people they have to live monogamously. Like, I'm, I have this like clear memory of being at a, giving a speech at a dating event and saying, making some snarky remark about, about polyamory and having a woman like bite my head off afterwards. Uh, so I'm, I'm not telling people how to live their lives. But what I'm saying is that, look, if you do prioritize marriage and you want to find a life partner, live your life that way. But I, in terms of the, your philosophical question of why marriage, I, maybe that one's above my pay grade. What you were saying earlier about mixed collar marriages, it reminded me of something I was reading about the marriage divide and how it's widening. And so this pursuit of finding your educational match, your economic match, it sort of widens the wealth gap. It widens the economic gap within the dating culture because then we're like assuming that working class and poor Americans need to just pair up and then the rich need to pair up. I I wonder, 
do you think that the marriage divide is a real thing that we almost force upon ourselves because of how we've been culturally and socially conditioned? Or is there hope for the marriage I, divide? I mean, I, I, are you going to kill me if I reframe the question a little bit? I, I, no. I mean, <laughs> it worries me deeply when I speak to sort of single marriage-minded women is this uh, desire to kind of hold out for the perfect guy who checks off all the boxes, the, the ones we're talking about, the, the guy who um, earns more than them and who went to the right college and that kind of thing. And to me, the, the, I mean, the whole like holding out thing just carries so much risk. It's what you prioritize. And if you're, if you put the success of prioritization on marrying a guy who went to an Ivy League school and who works for Goldman Sachs, you could be waiting forever because those guys, particularly if they're good looking, they know they're in demand and they behave accordingly. And when I say they behave accordingly, I mean they behave badly. Those guys, actually, I've come around to the idea that those guys, if they're unmarried into their late 30s and early 40s, I actually think they might in the end be unmarriageable because they've been, you know, they're in such high demand and they live their life that way that I I just, I, I think they're almost like they're too jaded and too... It works for it them. Works for, it it works for them, but do you want to marry them? Mm-hmm. Um there's also this this numbers game problem in which you start out with a dating pool of 40 women and 40 men. And this is for people who only want to marry other college grads. And, and, and essentially, this is the, the dating pool that Gen Z is graduating into, in which there's four women for every three men. So you start out with a like an imaginary dating pool with 40 women and 30 men. And 20 of the women you know, marry 20 of the men. The remaining dating pool becomes 20 women and 10 men, a two to one ratio. Once five more get married, the the ratio becomes 15 to five or a three to one ratio. So, but some of those marriages will break up, and they'll. Yeah, no, <laughs> they'll no, 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 I, 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 I hear you, but but like I, I'm always like using the musical chairs like comparison. Like yeah. in the first round of musical chairs, you basically have to be a moron not to get a chair. But by the last round, when there's two players in one chair, you have a 50 percent chance of losing the game. And in my, you know, the point I always like to make is, look, if you prioritize marriage, waiting until you're 33 to get serious about dating does not make sense. I did see that the divorce rate is actually on the decline. The Institute for Family Studies said a 50-year low divorce rate. Why do you think that is? And it's not just the pandemic forcing people to stay together. <laughs> so I, I, I have to admit, I'm, I've always been interested in the divorce rates and I've always wanted to write about them. But the numbers geek in me makes me nervous about it because in order to get divorced, you have to get married, right? Mm-hmm. And... I have two thoughts on this. One, I, I think there are a lot of very monogamous and happily coupled couples who are together nowadays and are not getting married. So that kind of pulls And I think once upon a time, marriage was a pretty good proxy for monogamy, but I'm not sure that's 
that's still true today. And economic security for women, frankly, which now we don't need to get married for that reason. Right. But also, I'm sure, I mean, I know, and I'm guessing, you know, couples who are living monogamously, but they've never actually yes. gotten married. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And they're very happy together. Goldie Hawn and, yeah, you know. but no, but they're happy together and everybody thinks of them as a family and they are a family, but they just haven't gotten married. So I, I think that that kind of messes with the marriage and divorce data. And the other thing that's problematic is so, so let's say you have uh, hopefully this won't be too confusing, but, but but let's say you have 20 married couples and five of these couples keep getting divorced and remarried over and over and over again. Between these 20 couples, you could have 20 or 30 divorces among them, right? So if I say, oh, you know, th- there were 20 couples who had 30 divorces, you'd say, well, the divorce rate is higher than the marriage rate. But in fact, only five of those couples, uh, like it only involves a small minority of the population. So I, th- this is. I'm sure there's a way to get to a real number here, right? A more true number. I've, I, 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 you would I, see, I don't. Because I, ha- I really think it could change the narrative around marriage. If we've been assuming and saying forever that marriage is 50% of marriages at least end in divorce, when that could actually be an unfair characterization. Well, no, I, I, no, I think technically it's true. 50% of marriages end in divorce. But it, what they aren't saying is 50% of first marriages end in divorce. I just distrust the marriage, the divorce data. But maybe you're right. Maybe if I was smarter and I, I had a better like sense of how to how to like go next level with the with the numbers. But I, I every time I see one of these like bustle articles on divorce rates, I see the holes in the in the logic in mm-hmm. the third paragraph. Well, I will let everybody who wants to learn more about the new science of dating to pick up your book. It's called Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. You can learn uh, not just about everything we talked about, but also John's views on why the play hard to get method is outdated and grounded in bad science, why it's better to choose than to be chosen and lots more. Maybe your third book will be on the divorce statistics and <laughs> what to do when you're when you're out of a marriage looking to date again. Do, because that's do, a wonderful. Do game. you want to hear? A, a, do you have time for a quick funny story? On yes. That? So, yep. so I, I had that idea after I wrote the first book. I was like, well, I could do divorce anomics. My then agent um, said to me, well, I have this thing that I call the Scarsdale um, train platform test. And I'm like, well, what's that? And he said. Would you want to be seen reading the book on the Scarsdale train platform? Yeah, yeah. And the and the the divorce anomics does not uh, pass the um the uh, the Scarsdale train platform <laughs> test. Listen, I think most books these days the titles you'd be caught dead reading in public. Um, so, well, that's why you know Kindle sales are actually doing better than uh, sales. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very good point. As the self help department grows in uh, at Barnes and Nobles, the titles get a little bit too revealing and we just, we want to learn in private. John Berger, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. Farnoosh, thanks for having me on again. Thanks so much to John for joining us. To learn more about his book, please visit John Berger, that's B-I-R-G-E-R.com. All this info, including the transcript, available at somoneypodcast.com. If you like what you're hearing, please, oh, please subscribe, leave a review, tell a friend. If you leave a review and I happen to pick it in our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, you will receive a free 15-minute money session with me. Just putting that out there. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money. Oh,